Okay, so there is, of course, a seismic historic change going on right now in the Republican Party this year. And one of our producers, Zoe Chase, uh, told me about this place where you can eavesdrop on a group of friends, idealistic Republican friends, as they fret and cope and argue about that change week after week. And there is a lot of pain. Zoe has been uh, covering Donald Trump and the Republican Party for our show all year. And every week she listens to this podcast called Ricochet, as soon as it goes up. The three hosts of Ricochet uh, describe themselves as center-right. They're basically Reagan Republicans. In fact, one of them was actually a Reagan speechwriter. And like old-school Republicans all over the country, this year they've been trying to square their old-school conservative ideals with their game-changing nominee and with what they see their party turning into. Here's Zoe. And the thing that's emerged is one of the hosts, Rob Long, he cannot be convinced to get behind Donald Trump. And he's sort of Mm. in pain over the whole thing. And then one of the other hosts, Peter Robinson, is a reluctant Trump supporter. And he brings on people to try to make all of them feel okay about supporting the Republican nominee for president. Mm -hmm. And Rob Long just isn't buying it. Like one time, this scholar named Larry Arn, who's also president of Hillsdale College, he came on the show with research into Donald Trump's writings and statements going back years. And we find things going back to 1990 or 91, and they are consistent. Donald Trump is engaged in a major assault upon the regulatory state, and it is the most full-throated one that I have heard since Ronald Reagan. Rob Long is also on the line. I'm sort but, of having a mini stroke here, but I'm you I'm just Rob. We'll we'll come to you in a moment. And we'll then Rob in comes in always like in pain. I, I guess I would start by saying something like uh, from the movie Jaws. I'd be worried a lot less if I thought you were worried a little more. The idea that you've used the word consistent to describe Donald Trump is to me ludicrous. Have you are you followed Donald Trump's business career? He has been an emphatic, full-throated supporter of government intervention. He has used those levers to get buildings built and to get uh, bankruptcies um, disposed of. I, I, I don't know what I, – I, Rob is now okay. uh, curled into a little ball, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm retreating <laughs> to my never-Trump safe room. Zoe and I invite Rob Long into our studio to talk about how Donald Trump is changing the party. Rob Ogden says that it's pained him hearing his friends say, we have to win this year. Winning under those principles is really not worth it. I mean, win. Win in what? And raise tariffs 25% on imports? It's crazy. That's a crazy, crazy, crazy ignorant idea. And, and I think with Trump, it isn't even. I mean, the, the, this thing on the bus, the audio on the bus, I mean, anybody who's surprised by that, I mean, give me a break. We, we knew he talks like that. To me, it's more like at any point Trump could have chosen to be a big person. He could have chosen. He could have just sat there in Trump Tower and said, you know, I'm going to have a speech about how uh, great Martin Luther King was and how great uh, America America is and how great we need – how we all need to come together. I'm going to give a big – someone write me a big speech. I'm not going to – I don't know the words. You may, you give me the words. But I want a big, big, big speech. Mm-hmm. You get it on that. It cost him zero. He just chose each time the small route. And I just find that um, – Offensive. I just am offended by that. I think it's a great, great, great gift to be to run for president. It's a great gift to be an American. And for him to do that and to treat it that way, callously, that's wrong. But it's not just Trump. For all three Ricochet guys, what's disturbing is the issues that Republican voters are abandoning this year and the issues they've decided to move towards. 
one of their episodes, the Ricochet host had this Republican political guy, Ovik Roy, who's been a policy advisor to Marco Rubio and Rick Perry and Mitt Romney during their presidential campaigns. I interviewed him, too. Roy has gotten some attention in the press for saying how dismayed he is that traditional Republican ideals have been cast aside this year. He says the issue these days that really animates Republican voters is immigration. What the party is about is racial resentment. What I saw the Republican Party becoming was a vehicle for the grievance of of disaffected whites who believed that the Republican Party should be an interest group for whites. Do you feel like this is your party, the party that you see now? No, I don't. And uh, I I don't know if I consider myself a Republican anymore. Um, I think the Republican Party is a lost cause. I don't don't think the Republican Party is capable of fixing itself because the people who are most passionate about voting Republican today are the Trump voters. And what politician is is going to want to throw those voters away to attract some unknown coalition of the future? This is the big question for all these guys. What's their party going to be after November 8th? Like, what's it going to stand for? Again, here's Rob Long. Look, everybody I know who's in my position is just sort of sitting there waiting and seeing. We're going to sit and wait and see. December 1, we'll probably start climbing, you know, climbing out from the smoking ruin and say, anybody else alive around here? Like anybody else? It'll be like The Walking Dead, right? We're going to like try to <laughs> come up with bands of people and walk across the country and let's not get ourselves killed or eaten uh, and hook up with people we think are not insane or horrible or in some way murderous. That's exactly what it's going to be like. Problems for old school traditional Republicans like Rob Long and Ovik Roy is that all the things that they saw as the central tenets of their party free trade, you know, cut entitlements, shrink government. What they learned this election is that their fellow Republicans don't care about that stuff. Well, lots of them don't anyway. The ones who voted for Trump in the primaries, which was 45% of Republican primary votes. What those people voted for instead was pull the drawbridge up, close the borders, protect American jobs. Very different from the old Republican values. Rob Ogg says that after the election, the two sides are going to have to rethink what the party is. It, it, it's, it is going to be a fight for the soul of that party, right? Those two groups cannot occupy the party at the same time. And does rethinking mean that, like, it makes you think, like, oh, well, maybe this is get rid of the entitlement reform. You know, like, like let's not argue for cutting Medicare and Social Security. Like, people don't like that. Yeah, but the whole the whole point of being a Republican is that you're supposed to say things that people don't like, that are true anyway. Like, no one wants to put missiles in West Germany, but that's how you beat back a Soviet menace. Nobody wants to say to uh, a 35- or 30-year-old wage earner, by the way, your retirement age is going to be 73 or 75, so mm-hmm. just you know, take care of yourself or don't. But in any case, you better save some. Nobody wants to say those things. Nobody really wants to be the party of that. Yeah. Um, but that's what being a Republican means. You're supposed to say the stuff that's true, even if nobody wants to hear it. Well, from WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. The fact is, this fight over what the Republican Party is going to be, it's already happening. It's not waiting for the election. It's happening right now. The battlegrounds are all over the country. And that's what our program is about today. We take you to one town that's one of the front lines. Meanwhile, in Washington, like right now, the Republican leadership, well, for months, Zoe's been saying that basically they seem to be going through the same thing the Ricochet guys are. They're looking at their own party and they're saying, wait. Is that us? Like, what's happening? 
do you look at somebody like Paul Ryan, Speaker of the House, right, or Reince Priebus, who's, who's head of the RNC, and even somebody like John McCain, it's like they've been fighting this battle for their ideals uh, to run the country, and they thought they had this big band of voters behind them. And then with Paul Ryan in particular, it feels like he just turned around and he's like, oh, my God, nobody is there. Right. Republican voters rejected those ideas when they voted for Trump. But then Ryan is still going around trying to sell them on like cutting Social Security and the kind of traditional Republican stuff, which Ryan has put together into a plan he calls a better way. Yeah. In this election, people don't want that. Also, at the personal level, Ryan is this super disciplined guy who exercises and he's like careful about his diet and he's a policy nerd and he's polite and he's kind of proper. And he's watching his voters cheering this guy who's the total opposite. It seems incredibly lonely for Ryan. And it looks incredibly sad and it looks very, very painful. And for months, sorry, you have been saying uh, that these Republican leaders just seem like tragic figures to you, like somebody should write a tragic opera. Someone should. As you know, because of your wish, we considered commissioning a tragic opera about Paul Ryan or Ryan's Priebus. Mm-hmm. And then we decided as a staff... You preferred a musical. A musical is more fun than an opera. That is correct. And with that in mind, I am pleased to present now, not a full musical, but a song, a world premiere by Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez. They did the songs in Frozen. And basically, we told them that Paul Ryan has all kinds of feelings that he can't express publicly right now, but they are the sort of feelings that a person might sing Could they help us imagine those feelings? Neil Patrick Harris sings the part of Paul Ryan. I knew some time ago You didn't want what I could give you anymore I knew some time ago This was not the party that it was for us before The truth sets in but the dream persists I don't believe you're all white nationalists It hurt to see you running to him I hope in time you'll see right through him And I'll be there when the nightmare has ended Yes, I'll be there in the light of day Turn your back on that troll you befriended Then come on back to me When you're ready for a better way I know he's what you want I know he says the things that make your passions flare I know he's fun and all Maybe I'm no fun, but it's because I truly care It's only for your sake that I endorsed I'm sure you could tell it was completely forced Now the guy is calling me a wussy I wish I could grab him by the lapels and tell him up all the pieces I'll be there no matter what they say Cut him loose and don't let him near your nieces Then come on back to me cause you'll be ready for a better 
Patrick Harris, the orchestrator and music director for our song with Stephen Oremus. Which brings us to Act One, Party in the USA. One way to track the changes in the Republican Party and to understand the split inside the party is to look at immigration. Obviously, it was Donald Trump's biggest issue during the primaries. There was the wall. There was the ban on Muslims. He even opposed certain forms of legal immigration, like the H-1B visa program. Remember that guy, Ovik Roy, the one... Uh, you heard a little earlier who advised Marco Rubio and Rick Perry and Mitt Romney during their presidential campaigns. Overgroy believes that immigration is the issue that is deciding Republican presidential primaries now. He says that he watched two of his candidates, Rick Perry and Marco Rubio, get into situations where Republicans simply would not forgive them because of their positions on immigration. They were seen as soft. Rubio would get booed at grassroots events. Perry went from being the front runner in the Republican primaries back in 2011 he was far ahead of the other candidates, in fact, and got knocked out of first place after a debate on September 22nd that year where Romney attacked Perry on this issue, and Perry was booed. The crowd booed, and overnight, Rick Perry went from first to fifth in, uh, in the race. What was remarkable about that was that Rick Perry, in every other way, was a rock-ribbed conservative on every other issue. But because of that one issue, immigration, uh, the equation flipped, and, and the voters went with Romney over Perry. He was sunk. So immigration is this urgent emotional issue for much of the Republican Party these days. But why? The facts on the ground on this issue are not changing dramatically. There is not a big surge of new immigrants into the country all of a sudden. As we talked about last week on our show, illegal immigration has been flat since 2009. Legal immigration has fallen in the last decade. So why is this the issue now? Why not the deficit or the slow economic recovery or the squeeze in the middle class or taxes? Like, why a wall? All this year, when our producer Zoe Chase was at Trump rallies and Republican events around the country, she would ask voters, why is this your issue? Did you lose your job to a foreigner? Do you live in a place that's been negatively impacted by immigrants? And people were like, no. It was hard to understand how this became the issue for so many people this year. And then in July, when Zoe was at the Republican National Convention, she met somebody, and she heard about a place that gave her a better sense of why. The person is Bobby Benson. The place is Minnesota. I first met Bobby at a barbecue at the convention, right outside the arena. He was drinking beers at a picnic table with the rest of the Minnesota delegation, and he'd brought along his best friend, Scott. These two grew up together in Hugo, Minnesota. 
They used to have similar views, but they've kind of split recently. Scott's saying stuff that drives Bobby crazy. For instance, they disagree on that thing that's splitting the party, the main plank of Trump's platform, immigration. Scott addresses the whole picnic table. The wall is coming. And who's going to pay for it, everybody? Mexico. (laughs) Friend just choked on his beer. I know. Bobby basically does a spit take. He's anti-wall. I guess I just believe that America is kind of for everyone. And the symbolism of a wall is just, it's not me. Scott, Bobby points out, had a wall around his house when they were kids. So maybe that's why he loves it so much. Should have seen this guy's house growing up. He had a nine-foot fence. I'm not lying at all. A nine-foot wooded fence. You couldn't even see between the slats. I'm not lying. Just wanted us to be safe and secure. Bobby is very Minnesotan. To me, what I have in my head is Minnesotan anyway. He's got this round, pleasant face. He can't handle hot sauce or anything spicy. He actually says, I don't like anything with flavor. And he's really, really nice. He doesn't like to disagree or call people out. This has put him in a hard position lately. The GOP just wrote build a wall into its platform, which means Bobby's views on immigration are in no way represented at this convention. It's uncomfortable for him because he loves being a Republican, like really loves it. He's got school spirit. This should be a fun party for him, but he's feeling weird about it. Bobby's friends go into the arena. We stay outside and watch Newt Gingrich on this huge television screen. He's scrupulously listing all the terrorist attacks committed by Muslims over the past 37 days. Let me refresh your memory. And that's when Bobby spills what's bothering him. He's like, speaking of Muslims, there is a large Somali population in St. Cloud, Minnesota, right near where Bobby lives. And people are furious. It's insane up there. Like, I feel so bad. He's dodging the mic at first. But then he tells me this upsetting story. A few months ago, Bobby was at an Applebee's in Coon Rapids. It's like an hour away from St. Cloud. And this hate crime unfolded right in front of him. This woman, this some, I don't know if she was small, this African woman was with two of her friends and their children, just minding their business. Uh, and they happened to be speaking Somali or whatever language. And this other white woman and her husband took offense to it just started cursing at him in the restaurant like speak English you're awful this that and one thing leads to another and the uh, management in Applebee's great people they kick the um, angry couple out and they're working on that and the woman has one of those big beer glasses and just sloshes it in her face and again strictly because two a group of people were not speaking English and have you know then she sets her drink down, they start kind of walking out, and she picks up her drink and smashes it in the woman's face. And then just pandemonium erupts. The kids are crying. The African woman's face was cut up and bloody from the glass. The incident made the news. Lots of people heard about it and talked about it. What happened that night was horrifying enough, but what really started upsetting Bobby was the conversation about it afterwards. Some people around him were siding with the woman who smashed the glass, not the victim. Talking to other people about it, they they say simple things like, well, you know, she could have just been speaking English. And it's like, you know, oh, well, they could have just left well enough alone. It's like, no. Every time I asked Bobby to explain who exactly was talking this way, Bobby would squirm in his seat and hold his breath like a kid scared to tattletale, like he was being disloyal. I have to choose my words very carefully. 
a lot of them are my friends, and they're like good people. Like I know people who. I'm trying to think of the most. No, well, can we pause this for a second? Basically, he doesn't want other Republicans in St. Cloud, Minnesota, to think he thinks they're being racist. These are his friends and family he's talking about. He let me start recording again. I don't know. You understand where I'm at, like the precarious wanting to be. I would definitely don't want to have it out there. Look, this is Bobby Benson saying these people are wrong, even though they're wrong. I don't. And just why? Because I want to be part of the of steering the party, at least at a local level, to a better place. You can't change things if you're not at the table. And that's what Bobby wants to do. He wants to change things in his party. I'd been looking to understand better how Republicans were dividing over this immigration stuff. And here were Bobby and Scott and this whole city of Republicans who used to mostly agree on stuff. And now these Republicans have ended up on opposite sides of a wall. Bobby told me he started freaking out about this exactly one year ago. It was in July of 2015 at a town hall meeting in St. Cloud. I wish all of you guys would give him a big hand here at ACES. This is Bobby's local congressman, Tom Emmer. They're at the ACES bar in downtown St. Cloud. The room is packed. People are squished in around the bar. This is one of many town halls Emmer does regularly all over the district. And it's going normally, a little awkwardly. Till this guy says, I think most of us are here to find out how you feel about assimilation of immigrants. Assimilation of immigrants. The congressman is confused, so the questioner clarifies. We did not ask for those Somalis. Nobody asked, asked us if we in St. Claude want those Somalis. And we understand that social groups like the Lutheran uh, Social Service and the Catholic Charities, they're dumping them in areas like St. Claude. Okay, and and so the question is, how many more are coming? We didn't ask for these people. Everybody that you read about is talking about this. So that is a main issue in this this city. There is no control. The people have no control uh, over over any immigration. The mayor doesn't. I don't know. Congressman Emmer is like, what are you even talking about? If someone's here legally, you don't get a say in whether they come into your city. And he fires a warning shot at the implicit racism here against Somalis, as if to say, don't go further down this road, you guys. And if you're asking me how I feel about immigrant populations who are in this country legally and who are actually trying to find a better way for themselves and their families, I support it wholeheartedly. I mean, the Germans had the same problem when they came over. The Polish had the problem. The Chinese had the problem. We have a I'm problem. We did it on our own. No, 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 no. We have a different really? problem. They yeah. didn't come to uh, subvert right. the Constitution. You're not addressing the idea that they're not being assimilated. The other people I'm going to that, tell you, the Somalis, according to the uh, measurements that have been used over time, are some of the fastest uh, assimilating uh, populations that we've had. There are Somalis in the room, too. Um, I hear all the time the word assimilation. You know, I feel myself assimilated. I speak English. I have a job. I have a family. I drive the same streets every day, just like you. What's the thing that's missing? You should not be afraid of Muslims here. If you guys have any questions, anything to talk about, come to us. We'll answer all your questions. We will uh, uh, address your fears. But 
I don't think there's nothing we have to fear uh, in America. Some people in the room don't buy it. They push back and demand a vote on refugees. Emmer pushes back, too. I, I'm going to say it out loud. When you move to a community, as long as you are here legally, I am very sorry, but you don't get to slam the gate behind you and tell nobody else that they're welcome. That's not the way this country works. And if we're going to talk about... I didn't think it was a problem until somebody I knew really well, because they, they got upset. This is Tom Emmer talking about that night. And they said, it sounds like you're telling us. You're not listening to us. We also work hard, and we also pay our taxes, and we also have kids to raise and go to school. And there's a huge economic burden placed on us now. And I think part of the fear that some of you talked about our fear is that we don't feel in control of what's happening in our city. It is out of our control. Where is our say on what happens to our schools? I don't know that you heard us. I feel you told us. And I thought I'd been listening all night. So then I stopped and I said, because then I thought, this is a problem because this person is not that way. Say what you mean, this person is not that way. What does that mean? They're reasonable. They're, they listen. They're compassionate. They, uh, they have definite strong views, right? Their views are much like mine. I've known them for a long time. And this person was clearly frustrated. And uh, so I stopped and I said, I apologize. What is it that you would like your congressman to do? For what? Sue, what is it that you want? Okay, okay. What is it that you want from me? This is, I think I speak for a lot of people. I think the city of St. Cloud needs a breather. And we need to assimilate with the people that are trying to... What does that mean? A break on the influx for a a period of time so we can take a little breather and all your your last your last statement though we can take a little breather you guys can just hold on Uh, it was say it out loud are you suggesting that no more immigrants should be allowed to come to st cloud until you have a moratorium the whole united states all right here's the thing all i can do is respond as open and honest as i can sue that's not something that I can do. That's not something that our Constitution says that we do with people who are And nice. that was the first time that I think I realized that uh, even good people, really good people, because I, I know this person. This person is not a xenophobe, not a racist. This is, I, I know this person for several years. This was a big moment for Tom Emmer. This is when he understood two surprising things. First, His voters want a ban on Muslims. They want no more Somali immigrants coming to their town. And second, the voters who want this, they aren't fringe weirdos. These are people he knows and likes and respects. Some background here. There are a lot more Somalis in town than there used to be over a short period of time. Fifteen years ago, there were only a handful of Somali residents in St. Cloud. Now there are approximately 10,000, about 5% of the St. Cloud metro population, which is 190,000. But still, almost 90% of St. Cloud is white, majority Catholic or Lutheran. It was and still is, relatively speaking, a monolithic place. People up there are always saying this thing. Yeah, this place used to be called White Cloud because it was so white. A place that was kind of closed off and suspicious of outsiders. Now there's this whole big new group of Somalis there too. The reason Somalis came to St. Cloud is because there was civil war and famine in Somalia 25 years ago, which forced people into refugee camps, mostly in Kenya. 
The U.S. government contracts with different nonprofits that specialize in refugee resettlement. One of those is based in St. Paul with an office in St. Cloud. And so a lot of the refugees end up in towns and cities in Minnesota after a year spent in a camp. The Aces Bar Town Hall back in 2015 felt like a dress rehearsal of the anti-immigration feelings that fueled the Trump campaign. They were calling for the Muslim ban before he was. It was hard at first to get the longtime residents of St. Cloud to talk about when did they first start to resent the growing population of Somalis in their town. It's a sensitive and awkward thing to confess. Some people hung up on me. I was thrown out of a meeting. I finally got some answers from Carol Ruper, head of the county Republican Party. She kindly did some research, printed out some old emails, and marched into Caribou Coffee with a stack of papers for our interview. She had a timeline. Okay, well, I looked back at the first information that I had where this started, mm-hmm. and I wrote down some, you know, some thoughts on that. The kind of anti-refugee resettlement this feeling. Whole thing started. According um, to Carol, it started in 2013 when the Islamic Center of St. Cloud tried to build this mosque slash community center on Clearwater Road. This would be the fourth mosque in town, but the location was pretty controversial. It was a residential area. And that if they were going to build this big complex, that was going to change the whole... I mean, there's a lot of traffic on, on um, Clearwater Road. Carol Clearwater says Road. she was not involved in opposing the mosque. Like she a, just knew some people who like were. An and those people formed a little group. They started calling themselves St. Cloud Citizens for Reasonable Zoning. And their complaints about it were, in part, all the normal things you hear in a zoning hearing. Traffic, congestion, when I bought my house, I didn't know about or want this kind of thing. When the time came for the hearing, 300-odd people showed up at the city council meeting. It was a contentious night. Lots of Somalis and non-Somalis showed up with big signs for and against. Please try to remember that the religion of this group is not the issue tonight. Sit down, please. If you would like to get in line, get in line. There's people waiting to speak. The whole meeting was bitter enough that by the end of the night, the Islamic Center had withdrawn its proposal. In fact, they said they could find a better place for it. They did, and it exists today. Out of this organizing against the mosque, some people in this group decided to keep meeting. It was like after being in that room together and actually getting what they wanted, they realized, oh, lots of us feel this way. We should stick together. St. Cloud Citizens for Reasonable Zoning morphed into another group, Peace in St. Cloud. And it was in July of 2015 when the situation started ramping up, according to what I could come up with. Yeah. Uh, and the residents in the area were feeling intimidated by the behavior. Uh, one quiet Sunday afternoon, there were a group of Somali women they described as a mini parade. On three occasions that afternoon, just, you know, parading through, making loud noises, um, taking pictures, and so that some of the little old ladies in the area got intimidated by that. I tried to run this down. It seems like it might have just been a handful of people out for a walk. People in the group were noting all sorts of situations where suddenly they, white people, were in the minority, and they didn't like it. White kids were outnumbered by Somali kids in music class, four or five to one. Someone in the group actually counted them up. 
Someone in the group described going by Schmidt Park and seeing 20 to 30 Somali boys on the basketball court, mothers and kids, and quote, no white people. This person wrote, the entire area looked and felt taken over. It was eerie. They also found, uh, one gentleman found uh, some Somali boys in his garage and going into neighbors' garages, and so that did not sit well. So that's when they called a neighborhood discussion, from what I understand. Okay, and they said, look, you know, there's an awful lot of these people here. What are we, we need to get together and do something. We feel that our neighborhood's being taken over. Carol and most people I talk to insist this is not about race. I heard this over and over. It's not about race. They say it's about money. How much are the refugees costing taxpayers? What's the drain on our county and on our school? That was the issue the group Peace in St. Cloud got organized around. Can we see an audit of how much is being spent on these Somalis? I feel that they are reasonable people with legitimate concerns. And they have a right to find out what this is costing. They have a right to find out how this works because, you know, they just do. And what I got from it is that people felt they had no say in this, that You know, here this whole group of people from a different culture descends on the, you know, on the town, and it's changed forever. And, you know, Governor Dayton has made the comment at least four times that, well, if if you don't like it, you can leave. Well, no, I I wouldn't leave. (laughs) That same month is the intimidation parade, and the basketball court was the town hall, where they asked their congressman, Tom Emmer, for a ban on Muslims moving to St. Cloud, And he told them, no, that's un-American. Soon enough, someone stepped forward saying, no, 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 that's perfectly American. This local opinion writer for the St. Cloud Times, a woman named A.J. Kern, started going around talking to Republican groups, gearing up to run for Congress to challenge Tom Emmer over this issue. She starts calling for a moratorium on refugees coming to Minnesota and to the U.S., A.J. Kern spent time in Iran in the 70s, and she wrote some opinion pieces about how potentially dangerous Muslims can be. The Peace in St. Cloud group asked her to speak with them about life in Muslim countries. Kern officially announced her candidacy in February of 2016. In her speeches, she'd talk about the terrorist attacks happening in France and Belgium, the one in San Bernardino, the Syrian migrant crisis. She warned there's no way for the U.S. or foreign governments to vet which refugee might be a terrorist. If there's no government office in Syria with a computer in, in some corner office that has a database to say who each Muhammad is, was there one in Somalia? It's the same, you know, war-torn, terrorist hotbed country. That's from her announcement speech at the Pickled Loon, a bar in downtown St. Cloud. Bobby, my Minnesota Republican warrior from the convention, he went to some of her events and they disturbed him. She told this imaginary story to everyone, and it was just, it was an older crowd, and so it was, imagine your granddaughter comes home now one day from school, and she says, you know, Grandma, I'm in love with my new boyfriend. He's right here, his little little Muhammad. And, you know, I immediately started like, uh, but then she went on saying, well, you know, what happens if they fall in love and they get married? Are they going to have a Christian wedding? Or are they going to have a Muslim wedding? And... You know, the the people there were like, oh, my God, what kind of wedding would they have? And then she just took it up a notch and said, you know, what happens when 
little Muhammad and your granddaughter have children of their own and you know they're Muslim now and so Muslims that's genital mutilation is part of their culture and so what what are you going to do when little Muhammad wants to do that to your great-grandchildren and when some not all of the group but when some of the group were like oh my gosh I don't know what I'll do like that's thank you for bringing this to my attention that's when I was like wow this is an issue that this line of thinking is an issue Kern ended up losing the 6th district congressional race to Tom Emmer it wasn't even close but in Stearns County where most of St. Cloud is she won by 77 votes that's about as big a divide as you can get between two Republican candidates. About 3,500 people voted. Carol Ruper, head of the Republican Party in St. Cloud, the one who met with me in Caribou Coffee and told me about the mosque, she did not vote for A.J. Kern in the primary. But she thinks she understands what Kern's supporters were drawn to. They're anxious about things changing too fast. Carol feels the same way. She's lived in this area all her life. She grew up on a farm. Today she's a realtor. And she does this thing, like when she wants to say something even slightly controversial, she does this grimace, like, uh, I don't know, but maybe. That's the face she gives me when she tells me this story to explain what motivates the Peace in St. Cloud group. Well, and I had a little granddaughter who was, have a little granddaughter. When she was three, um, she was at Crossroads, and there's a little play area. Crossroads is a mall in St. Cloud? And... Um, her mother and a friend were chatting and they let the kids play in this area. And so my little granddaughter, and she's blue-eyed blonde, um, she was about three. And so this little boy was talking to her, you know, nice. And so, you know, no problem, little, uh, was a little Somali boy. All of a sudden, he grabbed her around the neck and shoved her head into the wall. And she had a lump on the size of her head like you took a baseball or a softball and cut it in half she had this lump on the side of her head you know she had to go to the emergency room but you know that's behavior that we haven't seen that felt new to you even though those are just those are three-year-olds right right I know but um she was told that um well this little boy was probably four or five that that is not normal behavior that a child would do that it's learned behavior I don't know if it is or not so now, after that, they were, that was the end. They were never allowed to, to go back. To, you know, she never let them play in that play area again. You're so, worried. Like, yeah. you're worried that well, things are changing. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that's it. When people see things that are not what they are used to, that's scary. I think the Peace in St. Cloud group is trying very hard to, they want peace. In here, in St. Cloud. But don't run over us. You know, we're here and we like it the way it is. So don't, don't change it. Of course, there were other ways for her to think about this incident at the mall. Like this kid is emotionally disturbed. He had a bad day. There's something upsetting at home. Kids just hit each other sometimes. She could have concluded any of those things rather than we're being run over by Muslim immigrants who behave differently than we do. One reason that's where she went was that this was the explanation that was emerging all around her. People were talking about Muslim immigrants at meetings, on her email, on Facebook, and at talks that were popping up in the area. This was another new development in St. Cloud. 
central Minnesota was becoming a place where speakers were coming, speakers who spread the word about their perceived threat of Muslim immigration. Three years ago, 2013, Carol had gone to one of these talks in Little Falls, just outside St. Cloud. It was sponsored by the Central Minnesota Tea Party. She even bought the book written by the speaker, Bridget Gabriel. It's called Because They Hate. She has not read all of it. Zoe Chase. Coming up, Zoe goes to one of those meetings where they talk about Muslim immigrants. And she meets an elected official who believes that Sharia law has already taken over American cities. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio when our program continues. This is American Life from Ira Glass. Today's program, Will I Know Anyone at This Party? So if you're just tuning in, we've been talking about how the Republican Party is changing this year. Lots of Republican voters apparently are not so excited about the old Republican stuff like shrinking the size of government and having free trade. Instead, this year they are excited about cracking down on immigration. Zoe Chase is doing a story about St. Cloud, Minnesota, which is one of the front lines of this conflict in the party. In a reporting, Zoe went to a talk, they have lots of talks like this out there, about the dangers of Muslim immigration to the United States. We pick up our story from there. One of the repeat speakers on the circuit is a local guy named Ron Brantzner. First off, what we want to do is we want to stand up. We always say the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. Ron Brantzner, he's kind of bumbly and informal, but he does not hesitate to get up in front of a crowd and claim his authority on how immigration works. There is a movement that is going throughout the United States to try to change our culture, try to change who we are. He spent time in California, where he volunteered as a Minuteman along the U.S.-Mexico border to help spot people crossing illegally. He lives in the St. Cloud area. He has a super regular job in which he deals with the public, so he doesn't want me to say what that is. He's become a sort of traveling prophet. Like, he warns about the bad things that will happen to your town when the new group of immigrants come. He used to do these presentations about Mexicans. But as immigration from Latin America slowed and refugee resettlement increased in Minnesota, it seems he picked up a Koran and swapped out Mexicans for Muslims. I saw him in person at a meeting in Aberdeen, South Dakota, which isn't far from the Minnesota border. So what you see now and what you see five years from now, you're, you're not going to recognize the state. Ryan Bransner is where a lot of the members of the Peace in St. Cloud group get their ideas. He has a lot of theories, a lot of slides. I'm going to sum up those theories in three parts. One, refugees are costing you money. Bransner is very specific about this. It's costing taxpayers $14,000 per immigrant. You are not contributing to the United States at all. You are a welfare case. Two, nonprofits are getting rich off bringing refugees into Minnesota. This is something I heard from a lot of people. I also heard repeatedly that there's no transparency, no audit, no one has any idea how their tax money is spent by nonprofits on refugees. And it's a it's a money maker beyond anything. It's, it's the largest industry probably in the world, money wise. Three, and this is the one that really riles people up. As soon as enough Muslim refugees get to your town, they will institute Sharia law as the law of the land. Sharia is Islamic religious law as derived from the Quran and other religious texts and scholarship. It's not an all spelled out thing like the Ten Commandments. Branster says women will become second class citizens, non-believers will be killed. Basically, central Minnesota becomes part of the caliphate. Because they did a study, and a large percentage of the new immigrants in this country want Sharia law. I study the Quran every day for two hours. I know the Quran. 
I know Islam. Sharia law does not believe in man-made laws. It's against their religion. All laws come from their God. If you go outside of their laws in Sharia, you will be considered apostate and you will die. Ron concludes his talk by explaining Hillary Clinton has taken an oath that she will punish anyone who speaks ill of Islam when she is president. I want to thank Aberdeen for everything I Okay, this presentation seems to be pretty effective with the people in this room in Aberdeen. They really want information. This feels like information. 200-odd people in there, most of them applaud and put money in the basket. There are a few people who aren't buying it. One woman runs out in tears, yelling, you're crazy. At one point, an American Indian stands up to address the crowd, saying, you are all illegal immigrants. The entire room bursts out laughing. Somehow this joke works for everyone. Although, of course, it's not a joke. I want to say clearly here, the overall message of Ron Bransner's presentation is not true. He's right that the refugee resettlement program is a federal program. Locals don't have a say in it. But St. Cloud taxpayers are not getting screwed by this program. Ron's claim that each immigrant costs taxpayers $14,000 comes from this widely discredited study on the costs of amnesty, which, anyway, is a separate issue. The economic consensus is that in the long run, immigrants do not cost taxpayers money. Yes, they use government services. That's generally offset by the taxes they pay. And the fact that their presence expands the economy. It is true that refugee resettlement programs often put a strain on hospitals and schools initially because they aren't necessarily prepared for the influx. Interpreters, for example, do cost St. Clouds County an increasing amount of money, about $250,000 in the last year. But this is out of an annual budget of $54 million. As for the nonprofits who settle refugees in Minnesota, they get $2,025 per refugee from the State Department. Most of that they spend on the refugees. In this hotel ballroom in Aberdeen, South Dakota, people aren't interested in a debate over the economics of immigration. This is a conversation about fear. The most memorable conversation I had was with the state rep Al Novstrup. He's been in state government for 14 years, and he came to this meeting to get more information on Sharia law potentially taking over his city. Like it has other places, he says. Like where? Dearborn, Michigan. Have you seen that happen there? I haven't been to Dearborn, Michigan. From my perspective as a national reporter, there's still the Constitution. There's no Sharia anywhere. You don't think there's Sharia anywhere in the United States? Correct. I think you need to read more. I'm, I do read. You don't think there's Sharia any place in the United States? You don't. You don't think? Wow. Okay. You don't think there's Sharia? I'm just blown away. We're living in two different planets. Sharia is a really big talking point in pushing for a moratorium on refugees. The mayor of St. Cloud, Dave Kleiss, told me he heard that rumor about Dearborn so many times, he finally picked up the phone and called a member of Dearborn City Council. The city is about 40 percent Arab American. And double-checked, Sharia law does not govern Dearborn or anywhere else in the United States. Another talking point, the weirdest one, Somalis are systematically ruining rental properties by either trying to plant crops inside their apartments or raise fish in their bathtubs. 
I heard this in Minnesota and South Dakota both, the same basic story. This is how this movement works. It looks homegrown and grassroots in the hotel ballroom with Xeroxed handouts. But all the things Bransner talks about, Sharia, multiple wives multiplying the demographic changes, the Muslim Brotherhood plan to take over the government. There is a national movement of people repeating these things all over the country, and they're all saying the same thing. They feed off each other. Nationally, a major group pushing the same anti-Muslim talking points, it's called Act for America. It has local chapters in many states, kind of built off the Tea Party. Peace in St. Cloud recently morphed into an Act for America chapter. One of the members just told me. Act for America coordinates much of its work with this think tank in D.C. called the Center for Security Policy. The Southern Poverty Law Center now classifies both as hate groups. What this means is that if you're someone who lives in St. Cloud or Wilmer or Aberdeen and you're worried about a mosque coming to your neighborhood or a random parade going by weirds you out and you Google, say, mosque, refugee, zoning, there is a whole web of anti-Muslim information sources out there ready to respond to you. Like the blog Refugee Resettlement Watch, Creeping Sharia, all informed by the work of Act for America and the Center for Security Policy. And then there you are. You have a connection to speakers and tactics and talking points. It's this interconnected web of misinformation. Then there's this national speaker. And then I looked at poll numbers, and I don't mean polls where I'm winning. Those numbers I like looking at. These numbers I hated to look at. Here's Donald Trump announcing his Muslim ban idea back in December in South Carolina. 25% of those polls, and this was from the Center for Security Policy, very highly respected group of people who I know, actually. The Center for Security Policy, the group that works with Act for America. 25% of those polls agreed violence against Americans is justified as Muslims. 25%. 51%. 51%. Highly respected number of polling groups want to be governed according to Sharia. You know what Sharia is. These poll numbers have been discredited. And groups like the Center for Security Policy weren't just giving talking points to Donald Trump. They had people on Ted Cruz's campaign, and they fed the same ideas to speakers in little towns and cities like St. Cloud. This created a receptive audience for any political candidate making those talking points. The Somalis in town are not just passively watching the white people fight among themselves about Muslim refugees, of course. There are also small organized groups trying to push a different message in St. Cloud about new immigrants. They have speakers, too. You can get really busy in St. Cloud, actually, going to speakers and panels on both sides of this thing. My name is Ayan Omar, and I am a Somali refugee Muslim American. I met Ayan Omar at this interfaith dialogue meeting at St. Joseph's Church in St. Joseph, Minnesota, 15 minutes away from St. Cloud. She does these panels where she goes around to churches and tells her story of being a Somali Muslim refugee in America. Ayan's intense. She's 28, bright white hijab, dark red lipstick. When she does these panels, she takes questions. And the people in the room write them down on a piece of paper so that they're anonymous and pass them to the front. The questions are remarkably candid. 
Father Peter Mayer reads them out. I've been told by several reliable sources that Muslims believe that all people that are not Muslim are to be destroyed. This makes me fearful. Please help me understand. Okay, so uh, I was raised in a way that uh, the Quran says if you take one life, it's as if you've taken all of humanity. Uh, Ayan goes on and explains the five pillars of Islam. And does this demonstration for the room, how she prays five times a day. She kneels and touches her head to the church floor. People stand on their tiptoes to see. The next question, are Muslims allowed to be polygamous? Do we have to pay for multiple wives? Jama, people call him an elder in the Somali community, he takes this question. I say, okay, uh, here in the United States, we are allowed to have one wife. So we obey by, by the rule, and we have one wife. But the room tenses up. As I learned, here in the state, you can have one wife, but you can have five or six girlfriends. Ayan is a teacher at a high school in town, and she's a mother of a three-year-old. When she hears that people feel afraid of Muslims, she says, I understand having a feeling. You can't argue with a feeling. To those individuals who are afraid or who feel threatened or who feel that their world is shaking, you have a right to feel that way. You don't have a right to lash out. You know, uh, I tell my daughter this whenever she cries. I say, it's okay to cry. Or when she gets angry, it's okay to be angry. Everyone gets angry. But you don't have a right to slam the doors. The way she sees it is like St. Cloud is having a tantrum, and tantrums end. So she's patient. She's an optimist about St. Cloud. There are plenty of people in the city that don't feel this way at all. And for those who do, they just learned bad information. She can win them back by giving them good information. Then, in September... Breaking news out of St. Cloud tonight. The Crossroads Mall remains on lockdown after several people were stabbed. On September 17th, there was a stabbing at Crossroads Mall in St. Cloud, Minnesota. Same place, actually, that Carol's granddaughter got hit in the head. It was national news. You probably heard about it. Both presidential candidates have addressed it. It was a violent and awful act. This guy running around the mall with two knives asking people if they're Muslim. Nine people ended up at the hospital. All were released by the next day. The guy who did it was Somali, Muslim, refugee, American. He was killed by an off-duty police officer. Again, here's Ayan. You know, it's funny. I was at the mall. I, I missed it by 15 minutes. Um, I was shopping at Kohl's, and I received a text message just as I was checking out. Hey, are you still at the mall? I said, no, I left. Sorry. If you wanted to go, maybe we can go some other time. She goes, no, didn't you hear? I said, hear what? She said, oh, there was a stabbing. And I went online and I read it. And I remember thinking, oh, please, don't let it be a Muslim. Don't let it be a Somali. Because, you know, I've been working so hard and creating community. This, I don't need this. Um, and then I found out. It was a heavy-hearted week, emotionally exhausting.
In St. Cloud, there were two ways to read the stabbing. For the people who wanted a moratorium, it was proof. Some people I'd been talking to for months were like, I told you so. We knew it would come to this. To be clear, they were scared of violent extremism. One guy told me the day after the stabbing, he applied for a carry license. For those on the other side, unity rallies, press conferences, Somali leaders in the area running around giving interview after interview, saying that guy does not represent all Muslims. AM 1450, FM 1033, KNSI's Ox in the Afternoon. Congressman Emmer went on talk radio right after the stabbing, trying to keep everyone calm on all sides. If somebody uh, uh, commits an act like we saw on Saturday night, uh, it, it really drives... Uh, deep concern in the community fear. He knows that his constituents who want a moratorium on Muslims now, they want it more than ever. The old Peace in St. Cloud slash Act for America group met up the week of the stabbing. So did A.J. Kern supporters. One of them tells me they're gearing up either for her next campaign or someone with the same message to replace Tom Emmer. When I spoke with Emmer, he told me something like what Ayan might say. These are good people in his party who came under the influence of bad information. And you have to let them vent, and you have to listen, and then figure out what to do. I can give you this. I think it went on far too long. I think nobody confronting this allowed it to grow past what people in St. Cloud are comfortable with and people within the Republican small group are comfortable with. The local Republican Party, just like the national one, has to figure out where it's going to stand on this issue going forward. Are they going to be a party that welcomes immigrants, refugees, Muslims, or not? The problem for Emmer is his constituents went from having no opinion on the Somalis to a really strong opinion. Once that switch has been flipped, once voters have decided they want Somalis out, it might be hard to flip it back. I met up with Bobby again before I left St. Cloud in the Coon Rapids IHOP. He's been in lots of those conversations already, including this one that summarizes the problem facing the party pretty succinctly. I remember one time a, a guy stood up at one of the other meetings, and he's active in the party. He's, he's a, one of the better volunteers in the area. Everyone loves him, but he just stood up and he said, this is why we lose. Like, whether, whether you're right or wrong, you're coming off extremely racist. And if you want to make an uh, uh, argument that the reason the refugees coming is bad is because economically, this, that, the other, we'll have that conversation. But right now it sounds like refugees are bad because they're Muslims. And, I don't know, he was pretty passionate about it. He got up and left, and, you know, he, he said the right thing. And, he, I mean, I think he looked better for it. But everyone else was kind of like, oh, wow, I can't believe he thought we were racist. We said we're not racist. That guy got up and left. Bobby is still in it. He still goes to his local party meetings in a slightly different part of the state. I asked Bobby, is the Republican Party going to be more like you in the future or more Donald Trump? And he said, I see that conflict as between old and young. And the younger people will win out. And in the long run, sure. The short run, though, it's going to be messy. Zoe Chase is one of the producers of our program.
Act two, party guy. So as we said at the beginning of the show, so many people in the Republican leadership seem like tragic figures this year. Not so happy with the nominee, Donald Trump, but having to hold their tongues, even as his poll numbers are now looking very, very bad. They have to stick by him. The head of the Republican National Committee, Reince Priebus, he has the job of holding the whole party together, including things like trying to get his nominee to play nicely with the House leader, Paul Ryan, and vice versa. That is clearly a thankless, grueling job. We asked Broadway composer Michael Friedman, who did a political musical called Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson, to imagine what Reince Priebus might be thinking but not expressing publicly. John Ellison Conley sings the part of Reince Priebus. The Speaker of the House calls and says, Tell Trump I'm not speaking to him anymore. Then the candidate tweets, Ryan's a traitor. Also, Miss Universe is a whore. A two-hour call to say, Donald, please just make an apology. Then Breitbart adds, just don't tick off your core constituency. Meanwhile, half the Republican leadership called to say, We are shocked, shocked and appalled. And I just smile, I'm a party guy. Smile, toe the party line. Even when you don't know why Fox News asks me Is Donald Trump a good role model for the youth of today? And I say, you know, I think everybody's a role model in their own way My biggest donor to the New York Times Right, Priebus should be fired You want to know how it's going Honestly, I'm tired, but I smile I'm a party guy Smile, toe the party line Don't let them see you cry On Monday night, my finance guy told the Washington Post The RNC is sinking fast and it's our own fault On Tuesday, my director of communication said He wasn't sure if grabbing genitals was sexual assault The Wall Street Journal says Republicans in an all-out war And late at night, I asked myself what were we even fighting for? Smile, you're a party guy. Smile, you can't say that I didn't try. Smile, I don't need your flipping thanks. Just don't blame me when your country tanks. You take whatever victories you can get So I'm not pouring Baileys in my cereal yet Smile, whatever will be, will be I'll still have the party Reince and the party The party and me John Ellison Conway. Arrangements and musical direction for that song by Justin Levine. Well, our program is produced today by Susan Burton and Zoe Chase. Our production staff for today's show. Dana Chivas, Sean Cole, Neil Drumming, Karen Duffin, Emmanuel Jochi, Stephanie Fu, Hannah Jaffe Wald, David Kestenbaum, Sarah Koenig, 
Mickey Meek, Jonathan Manhevar, Robin Simeon, Matt Tierney, and Nancy Updike. Research help from Lily Sullivan, Christopher Swatala, and Benjamin Phelan. Music help from Damian Grave. Special thanks today to Kirsty Marone, Sally Jo Sorensen, Haji Youssef, Natalie Ringsmith, Kathleen Grunig, Linda Radin, Paul Brandmeier, Sue Eck, Matt Westland, Jeffrey Bauman, Giovanni Perry, Cindy Kent, John Esposito, NJ Abdel Kadar, David Niewert, Mark Sizer, Jody Avergan, Kalio Abiyade, Kevin Janoszkowski, Robert Costa, Mark Glebovich, and Stephen Merritt. Our website, thisamericanlife.org. This American Life is delivered to public radio stations by PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Thanks, as always, to our program's co-founder, Mr. Trey Malatia, who you know we hear from every week here at the end of our program. He told me he feels like he is just not getting enough airtime. Someone write me a big speech. I don't know the words. You, may, you give me the words. But I want a big, big, big speech. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. This American Life.